Welcome to the Lilly Library. Thank you for coming this afternoon. We're pleased to have Christoph Ermscher, a professor of English and director of the Wells Scholars Program here for this talk on uh, Audubon and Havel today. And this, uh, this talk and reception following is sponsored by the Friends of the Lilly Library in conjunction with Rear Book School of the University of Virginia. And uh, this is a companion to a course that's going uh, this week uh, for Rear Book School of Virginia. So thank you all for coming. Our speaker today is well known in the field of John James Audubon and in many other fields as well. Uh, professor Ermscher is a professor of English and director of the Well Scholars Program here. He's the author of several books. He has done exhibitions on uh, many subjects, including Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who did an exhibition at the Houghton Library, published a number of books and articles. Most recent book is on Louis Agassiz, Creation of <coughs> American Science, and he's currently at work on a book using the Lilly Library's collection related to Max Eastman. And very pleased to have him here this evening. Thank you, John. So, can you can you all hear me? Mm -hmm. um, I project pretty well, but if, if there's any point where you can't hear me, anyone just raise your hand. Um, I I can't start uh, talking about Audubon without paying tribute to the actual volume, which is right here. It's one of four volumes of Birds of America. It's almost like, like the altar in the church. That, uh, for me, this is the holy grail of everything. I did not realize by asking that the volume would be displayed here that I was kind of um, also shooting myself in the foot because I can't have water now um, up here in front. <laughs> obviously, it doesn't go well with um, Birds of America. So as Joe mentioned, I, I've done work on Audubon for 20 years now. Um, started um, when I was writing a book about the poetics of natural history, it became hooked on these, on this magnificent, magnificent work. Um, there's four volumes of Birds of America in our collection. It's not always four volumes. In fact, the first uh, picture I show, that's the only, that's the end of self-advertising, because you see me actually looking at a copy of Birds of America that was owned by the man I'm talking about today, John, uh, Robert Havel Jr. That's his own, his, his own copy. It's at Trinity College in Hartford, and uh, it's a very, very fine copy. Havel was the printer of Birds of America, and he kept out of each um, plate that he printed <coughs> the finest prints for himself, and had it actually bound himself in six volumes. So I just wanted to mention this. There's not always four volumes. At Hartford, actually, you get six altogether. Um, and there are some others as well. Uh, let me just start by saying a few things for those of you who don't know all that much about John James Audubon. And there might be some. Um, up until last year, I was able to say, whenever I did presentations about Birds of America, the most expensive printed book there is. I can't anymore because of the Bay Song book, unfortunately, which was a disaster. This was my opening line for many, many years. Uh, but it's still pretty close, and it's, it's to me the most gorgeous, the most gorgeous work, natural history work ever published. 
There's four volumes of it, 435 plates. It took Audubon and Robert Havel 11 years to complete it. Um, just a quick note about the name Havel. I pronounce it Havel. Most Audubon scholars pronounce it Havel. There's descendants of the Havel family uh, who pronounce it Havel. And you might hear that pronunciation. It's never, ever Havel. There's a well-known Audubon biographer who shall go unnamed who goes around saying Havel. And that's just wrong. It's either Havel or Havel. So this is John James Audubon, uh, the, way he would, uh, the way he wanted to be portrayed, the way he liked to be uh, seen. He was born in 1851 in Haiti, in the New World. I didn't spend all that much time there because, as, um, as you know, Haiti was the site of the one successful slave rebellion uh, that made things pretty uncomfortable um, shortly after um, Audubon was born, 1785, I'm sorry, but 1785, he died, 1851. 1785, um, he, his father was a slave trader and merchant uh, who spent um, up to three years away from home, go to West Africa, pick up slaves, and then uh, um, head for Saint-Domingue, where Audubon was born. Audubon was illegitimate, which was a great source of concern for him his entire life. Uh, because he felt it was a sort of blemish that he had to make up for, with all sorts of stories that he invented about where he was actually from, where he was born, what his uh, descent was. Um, at, he would at times even hilariously claim that he was an Englishman. Uh, he never lost this very strong French accent, so you could always tell when he was from. He grew up in France, in Nantes, where his father had him shipped after the slave rebellion broke out. Uh, and Nantes uh, was a pretty violent place, as were most places in revolutionary France. Audubon would witness executions in the market uh, square, essentially. It was part of his daily bread, really. It was also a place that he later on remembered as, as exotic, as sort of full of birds that you know, had been brought to France, the smell of coffee, the smell of spices, and so forth. So the exotic world was basically at his fingertips as he was growing up. Um, his father, who was a very smart man, uh, saw to it that Audubon did not stay in France to be drafted for Napoleon's army. So in 1803, the year of the Louisiana Purchase, Audubon <coughs> made it to the United States, uh, first to an estate that his father had in Pennsylvania, and then uh, sort of finding his way south, ending up not far from here in Henderson, Kentucky, where he was a merchant. Um, and quite a successful merchant, in fact, uh, for a considerable period of time. Uh, he married the daughter of an Englishman, Lucy Bakewell, and Lucy is, in fact, a great part of the Audubon story. Uh, she was essential to his success in, in many, many different ways. Um, Audubon, at some point, um, after he came to the United States, embraced this absolutely crazy idea that he wanted to paint all the birds of America life-size. This is not really what you're born wanting to do. And we are entirely, we are not entirely certain when that first idea germinated in him. There were predecessors. Alexander Wilson, American Ornithology, is a gorgeous, gorgeous work uh, that preceded him, Audubon. And in many ways, Wilson pioneered the kind of techniques that Audubon used, um, uh, selling volumes by subscription, for example, traveling the country in order to find subscribers. But Audubon was convinced that he could do better and he could do more. Uh, first of all, the idea to create life-size representations of birds on 
a sheet of paper. That was Ottomans. You could actually take the bird and sort of put it right on the uh, right on the sheet, and it would match perfectly what was on there. Um, he quickly realized that he couldn't find, wouldn't be able to find anybody in the United States to actually help him implement the idea. Now there's the important part, and this is going to be the first kind of essential point I want to make today. He had to, from the beginning, Audubon did not envision the watercolors he produced as the final product. Was the print, or multiple prints. He wanted it to be in multiple hands. And that is something that has made it a little difficult for art historians, for instance, to take Audubon as seriously as he should be taken, in my opinion. Because we still have this notion of the aura of the work of art. Uh, and Audubon prints are unique in that each of them is hand-colored. And there are slight differences, depending on, you know, colors might have slipped up, there might be little blemishes, and so forth. But they are still not the one and only copy that exists of an image. And that has been a bit of a complication. Audubon is, in my opinion, our first great multicultural American artist. A Frenchman, born in the New World, American citizen, embracing birds of America. But our historians have become slow in catching on to this. So he needed somebody who could, in fact, implement the printing of what he had in mind. Not the smaller size that Alexander Wilson had envisioned, but what he ended up calling double elephant folio, which is, you know, like many terms, you know, a term that's intended to impress, right? I always have to explain to undergrads that uh, no elephants were killed in the making of this book. <laughs> it's really sort of a designation uh, for the largest successful paper size ever used for a work like this. There is a larger book, uh, book of Bhutan, about Bhutan that's at the few museums, but we don't have it. But it's... Uh, I guess debatable whether you can call it successful. This was in many ways a success story. But he needed somebody who would do that for him. And the man he ended up finally uh, entrusting with this is Robert Havel Jr. He was not the first printer that Audubon enlisted. In fact, the first printer was a man called William Lazars in Edinburgh. Uh, Audubon traveled to England in 1826 with the express intention of finding someone who could print the volume that he had in mind. He was not even finished painting all the images he wanted, but he knew that he needed some kind of plan for getting this work into print. William Lazarus was not on Havel's level, but he was in Edinburgh. He was situated um, in what was essentially the scientific capital at the time, uh, he looked at Audubon's watercolors and was blown away by them. He said, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life, and I want to be part of it. He found them breathtaking. Audubon was excited. He felt that he had a business relationship that would work. Lazarus was hit by labor strikes pretty uh, uh, soon into the process. And it became clear that the timeline that Audubon had in mind wouldn't work. Audubon had virtually no money. His wife was back in the United States. She was supporting, in the, she was supporting the, uh, the two sons he had left. Two daughters died uh, in, uh, uh, shortly after they were born. And Audubon had no cash, essentially. He needed to get started 
on selling his work so that he could make money in the process, that he could pay the printer, he could also hopefully lay some money aside for his family. Um, so what Audubon did when it turned out that Lazarus couldn't deliver, he went to London and started initially looking for people who could color his plates. Um, and the story, this is a, we don't know whether every little detail of it is true, but it's certainly a nice story to be told. Uh, he ended up talking to Robert Tavell Sr., the father of Robert Tavell, who had a print shop in uh, an area that's still called Fitzrovia, uh, off, um, not very far from Tottenham Court Road, where print shops, coppersmiths, and so forth, but also painters were located. And uh, Robert Tavell Sr. realized pretty soon that the scale of what Audubon had in mind, he could not, in fact, deliver on, that he needed help. So he went to a friend by the name of Kolnagi um, and asked if he could find someone, an engraver, who could assist him in the process. And when he saw the work by one specific engraver, he said, that's the one I need. And Kolnagi is supposed to have said, send for your son because Ravel Jr. was estranged from his father. And it turned out that he was indeed the best. This is the beginning of a long business relationship, very long business relationship, lasted 11 years. Um, I have a, uh, an example of the kind of work that, uh, actually let's skip ahead a little bit, I, the kind of work that Havel was doing at the time, and uh, it's a, a view of uh, London, Blackfriars is misspelled, I know it has an A, it's misspelled on the plate itself. Um, so absolutely gorgeous, very sophisticated work, um, this is from the 1820s, it's at the time that Audubon uh, went to see him. Now, skipping back a little bit to the um, Two Birds of America, this is the way we often know um, Audubon's plates. Um, animals, uh, birds, featured front with some kind of background. One of the things that we often forget, and this is what I would like to talk about uh, today, one of the things that we often forget is that this background, Here's a, an enlargement of this background, all beautifully executed, sort of a night landscape, uh, no people in it, which is very characteristic. Uh, that this background is not something that Audubon often have provided. So what you see here is on the left, is, is the watercolor. What Audubon would have given to the printer, what you see on the right is what happens after the bell is done. Um, and these are significant additions. Um, very carefully executed. You see that um, watercolors, Audubon's watercolors, are in fact something like field notes for him. And that's a point that uh, um, is very important to make. Some of you might know that the New York Historical Society, which owns Audubon's watercolors, has for a few years now been displaying the watercolors. They call it the entire flock, basically being on display. Um, and they are absolutely beautiful, but if you go back and think about it from Audubon's perspective, this was not the final product that he had in mind. These were notes to himself and to the printer that he envisioned, uh, not uh, 
something that was to be enshrined as permanent. Audubon used all sorts of means to create these watercolors. And you see, I listed the, uh, uh, what he used for that particular one, for the Barnall, watercolor, graphite, um, black chalk, black ink, uh, pastel, and gouache, a kind of thicker um, uh, watercolor, selective glazing on paper, all sorts of effects just to get right or, or make sure they would get right what he saw in the field. So sometimes he would actually use his thumb and saliva, you know, wipe over it, scratch with a knife and so forth. You can very, uh, you can often see uh, the results of um, Audubon's work on the sheet. The background that Havel used actually has, and this was pointed out by an art historian uh, to me some time ago, as a surprising resemblance uh, to Thomas Cole's um, uh, Oxbow uh, painting, uh, which actually came later. Uh, so it's not something that Havel could have copied. He did copy, and we know of a few cases where he took backgrounds uh, from books uh, that he had. Uh, but I think this gives you a, de a, a sense of the amazing detail of these backgrounds and the work that Havel and his colorists put into each of these plates. It also gives you a sense of how great the photography is that, uh, and I need to mention them here, that Zach Downey is the movie's photographer here. Um, so he produced a digital copy of the entire set. And you can enlarge it you know, any way you want. It doesn't get blurry at any point. It's just, a, just amazing, amazing work on his part. So I want to talk about these two people in conjunction, and I want to, in a sense, get Havel back into the equation. Audubon scholars mostly talk about Audubon when they talk about, about works of America. They talk very, very rarely about Havel and Havel's part in it. Yet without Havel, this set would never have existed. So I'll take you through some of the uh, some comparisons between watercolor and plate. Uh, so you get a bit of a sense of what we are talking about. Um, on the left is always the watercolor. Again, these watercolors are the New York Historical Society today. Uh, there you see it's one of his, um, what, an early plate in Birds of America, in a, um, plate um, um, 51, I think. Um, Red-tailed hawk. Uh, watercolor, again, different uh, media used for that. It's just an amazing image. You see this, this kind of, this tumble here that uh, happens uh, with the male attacking the female that's holding uh, the hair, and you actually see the excrement of the hair coming out here. These plates, are, uh, these images are very graphic. You know, These are based on Audubon's own observations. Now look at the uh, plate, and you see that what Havel did was add this, this, this kind of, kind of, some kind of generic mountainscape uh, that kind of anchors the image a little bit. Not everyone thinks that this was a great idea to do that. You know, there are some people who say, you know, this gives you an image of the bird suspended in air, and that kind of contextualizes to the extent that some of the drama is reduced. Um, not sure I completely agree with it. It actually gives you a sense, which is something that for Autumn would have been important, of the difference of these birds from our lives, that they are actually in relation to our world, which just pops up here at the bottom, that they are far removed from it that this is happening in an area where we cannot be. Fishhawk, or Osprey, uh, you see what Havel did. Havel added just a slight 
imitation of the mountain scenery again and water. And he's extremely careful in doing so. Because he's always, he's always thinking, and that is remarkable for somebody who works from a copper plate, he's always thinking in terms of the colors that will finally come out of this. So you see uh, the blue-gray sea replicated in the back of the fish, or the snow-capped snowy mountains here reflected, or being in some kind of a correspondence with the white feathers, the underwing feathers and the leg feathers of the hawk. Snowy owl, which you have right here as the actual plate. Uh, minor, minor detail, but apparently important for her value. You see all the edges here of this little hole that kind of opens up in the sky uh, are jagged. Also here, to the right. And you see how Odin makes it round, how Havel makes it rounder. Because that's something that he, that he somehow, he wants to get this roundness because you see little correspondence emerging between the round forms of the owl. And that he's thinking of this in terms of an aesthetic composition. He's also making the, altogether the sky a little darker. This is sometimes you read that this is a night scene. It is not. Odin knew that snowies don't hunt at night. Uh, he wouldn't have made that mistake. Uh, it's a it's bad weather uh, scenario, essentially. And it becomes a little clearer when you see the contrast between the clouds and the bright sky uh, uh, being, being uh, intensified in Havel's version. This is probably one of the most famous uh, editions. It's still one of the most expensive plates if it's sold separately out of Audubon's work. You see uh, the edition that Havel made, where he essentially represents a flock behind the bird, uh, making the image sort of recede into infinity. Uh, Audubon's watercolor is just blank, just white. Um, and uh, so he creates depth, essentially. This is sort of a rescue operation that Havel performed. Uh, we are kind of used to talking about Audubon in these glowing terms, how he's always great. This is one of his worst plates. And you can almost imagine how Havel looked at this and looked at this play and went like, oh my god, what is this? You know, what really happened with this play is that the birds were painted at different times um, in Audubon's fieldwork. Uh, these are earlier birds. This is sort of the old style of representing birds statically in profile, right? Um, and you know, it's just ludicrous how this bird kind of sort of seems to be drifting in empty space. Um, Audubon also made a mistake, incidentally, that's one of his famous mistakes. He thought that this was a separate species. They're both Cooper's hawks, but he thought this was a Stanley hawk. He named him after um, some, some Earl of Stanley or something as a tribute, but it was, it was a mistake, basically. So this is mature Audubon. You know, birds about to soar or in some way to pounce or in some kind of uh, action that's about to unfold. And so what Havel does, he creates some kind of landscape around it in, in order to unify, to pull together, which is really totally disparate in the original uh, because he feels, I, I just cannot have that. Sometimes Havel worked, and that's a little faint, the outline, but you can still see it. Sometimes Havel worked from specific instructions that Audubon gave him. Sometimes he improvised. Sometimes Audubon would sketch out as he did, and you can just see the pencil marks here. Um, if, um, it's a little too light here to see them, and I probably should have darkened it a little bit. But that's what Havel got, and then Havel went ahead and uh, did this background uh, for Audubon. 
it's the Rosier spoon mill, um, which actually just a few years ago was the, was the first sighting, I think, in 100 years of a spoon mill here in Indiana, uh, in the Goose Pond area, which uh, is quite amazing. And I actually saw it, it a tiny little speck in my, my binoculars, but I did see it. Um, here's, uh, here's an instance where Havel actually interferes with the ornithological uh, concept as well. Uh, he didn't like Audubon's design, obviously, for in the watercolor, where the female of the red-breasted meganser is kind of soaring off, taking off. And he creates a more condensed, a more concentrated image here by making the bird actually sort of point downward rather than upward. And he also adds, that's Havel's edition, that's a pitcher plan, the yellow pitcher plan, the Saracenia, um, giving the image sort of more of a narrative that it really doesn't have, where you have in the, in the watercolor, you have one bird doing this, another bird kind of taking off. And Havel tries to sort of unify the thing somehow. He knew his botany pretty well. Uh, the pitcher plan was something that the British naturalists were very interested in anyway. And uh, Havel had done, uh, as he was working, still working on Birds of America, had done botanical images uh, for the wife of a Liverpool merchant, uh, Mrs. Burry, uh, beautiful, beautiful images uh, of plants. So that's, that was not a new field for him. Um, I just wanted to include this. This is sort of Havel at one point just saying, man, I'm always doing backgrounds. You know, let's reverse it. It's from about the time that he was working on Birds of America. And here he has gulls over rough seas. You see how it makes the birds small? And really the water huge. You know, this is sort of like inverting things a little bit, I guess, for his own sanity. You know, because he's always the background man, right? Um, this is actually um, an oil painting. And one can imagine that Audubon would have been a little envious of this. Oil was always, as a medium, was something that invaded Audubon. He was very unhappy about he never achieved that mastery uh, as a painter of oils that he wanted. So Havel didn't always add things in. Sometimes he took things out. And this is probably one of the most celebrated examples. It's sort of a little game like uh, spot the difference uh, between original and, and, and copy. What's, what's the difference? I mean, other than the coloring, I guess, which is also an effect of my Basically, of the reproductions that I there's made. Yes, there's something on the log, indeed. And that is, we think, uh, an Audubon self portrait, um, which is, in a sense, sort of a great narrative that he's creating. You know, there's this eagle taking off, a golden eagle taking off, of course, prey uh, in uh, his talons, and there's always an Audubon, something warrior, you know, one claw uh, goes through the eye of the, uh, uh, the hare. And you can see, you know, what he was aiming for. The bird is soaring, and here the human is going down. So it's a, they're parallel movements, but in different directions. So the human is pointed the other way. And you can see it actually more clearly in the next slide. If you look at that, you can see uh, what Havel did. So, and you can also see that this uh, hunter, if it's Audubon himself, has an eagle strapped to his back. Uh, which arguably uh, messes up things a little bit for if we, this is a, a female golden eagle, uh, if we uh, think that this eagle is bringing whatever uh, uh, food uh, she can find to a young eagle here, 
the nest is empty, if indeed there is a nest here. It's a little hard to tell. Um, but what does Havel do? You know, if this is Ottoman's narrative, he takes it out. He removes it. And all that's left is this chasm and the uh, tree trunk that's over it. And some people have thought of it as kind of a loss, right? Why did he do it? It makes sense in some ways when you think about Havel's landscapes, you know, empty, devoid of human presence. The whole kind of narrative of Birds of America, in a sense, is that the birds are the primary residence of this universe that these plates feature, not humans. Ottoman was being romantic here, in a way, getting carried away. Um, Havel had to remind him of what it is that we are actually doing here. Right? We are not telling stories of your heroic exploits. Uh, that changed a little bit later when Ottoman came to be more in control of the narrative and started writing his own texts. Um, so, in order to understand what Handel was doing, what obstacles he faced, we need to be a little clearer on what medium he actually worked in. And I want to do this very briefly, and just talk a little bit about the printing process. And, uh, and invite you to think about the different ways in which Audubon and Havel worked. Audubon would look at a bird and would try to paint it as accurately as possible. Unless that one step, he would try to kill it, um, and often very successfully, because he would kill, uh, would draw from a killed specimen. <coughs> that, as we now know, he would rig up on a board uh, with pins, um, and he would have a sheet of paper and would start drawing on it. And he would do this sometimes for hours, sometimes for uh, more than a day, uh, often without pause. He was remarkable in that way. Now, Havel works from a watercolor, like the watercolors you've seen. There, in a sense, Havel's birds, the equivalent of Audubon's bird, is, in fact, the watercolor that he gets from, from Audubon. And Audubon tells him, now you represent this as accurately as possible. Now, Audubon, when he does that, has all sorts of things at his disposal, watercolors, pencil, chalk, whatever, his fingers. He can use whatever comes in handy. Um, Havel cannot. Havel works in he works uh, with uh, kind of a soft, unalloyed copper uh, that he has to treat in a number of ways. And there are so many different steps involved. So many different artifacts are created in the process um, that it's kind of mind-boggling to envision that. Here's one sequence that an art historian colleague of mine once put together, and I took this slide from him, Alan Braddock, who's done very innovative work on Audubon. Uh, there you see it's a copper engraving plate of a common loon and there you have the uncolored print that comes out of it. But between those two steps, and even before the first uh, step, are a number of other things he has to do. So Havel would get the watercolor and would then trace the watercolor, uh, the paper that he especially prepared. And that tracing paper you would run through a press with a copper plate so we would get an impression on the copper plate of the image that he just traced. And then he would start working on the plate. And there are different processes, sometimes up to three that were involved. The first one would be sort of the traditional engraving, where you don't use a traditional engraving technique, where you don't use any kind of coating, where you just scratch into the plate directly. That's not something Ottoman does very often, uh, Havel does very often. The second one would be etching, which involves coating the plate with a rosin substance 
and scratching through that coating. It's an acid-resistant rosin substance scratching through that you expose the bare, the bare metal. That would then be immersed in an acid bath. And depending on how long you do this, you get shallow lines or deep lines. The deeper the grooves, of course, the blacker the image, the more ink they can hold. So it's a process that you have to be very careful about. You, you work at the level of micromillimeters with these images. The third technique is the one that was Havel's province. That's something Lazars couldn't do, but that Havel could do. And that's the aquatin engraving, which has nothing to do with watercolor, actually, despite the name. And that would not mean, uh, not involve coating the way you do it for etching, but you essentially dust rosin kind of powder, rosin powder on the plate would warm the plate up from below and create, as the rosin melts, a surface that has tiny little dots in it through which the acid then eats. The more dots you have, again, the blacker the image. So that's not line, not working at the level of the line, but working on areas of the work. So you can imagine what a complicated process this is. And this is just working at the plate. So you haven't even gotten to that second part yet, the printing part. There's another step involved that is, that is actually very complicated and fraught with problems. Um, this is something that, um, um, let's, let's just skip this for now. I just want to show you another sequence where you, uh, I've taken another image. This is the uh, American Bittern. That's actually, um, something that's not too far away from here in Henderson, Kentucky. So that is the watercolor. Audubon delivers the watercolor to Havel. This one, actually, interestingly enough, Audubon says was made by his son, John Woodhouse, but that's not important for our purposes right here. This is a detail from the copper plate, where you can see how gorgeous these copper plates really are. We have about uh, 80 of them left, currently, and uh, Audubon Museum in Henderson has two. Um, when you ink the plate, and this is a step that comes after all the etching and aquatinting is over, when you ink the plate, you can again screw up in multiple ways. Because that's a process that is so important to get right. If you put too much ink in, it actually disturbs the print. And the coloring gets more complicated. So you need to be very, very careful as you do it, using cheesecloth, sometimes your hands, in order to make sure that the ink stays in the grooves. So you ink the plate first, and then you have to clean it, you have to wipe it, so that you get a clean impression. This is from actually a restrike that was done with this very plate uh, by Michael Arkus, who's at the University of Southern Indiana, who is a printer, uh, who did a successful uh, restrike. So copper plate worked on in these three ways that I've mentioned, uh, inked, and then run through a press, a great pressure. What you get out of this is a black and white image. It's all you have at this point, a black and white image, which is not yet colored. So the basic point I want to make is that while Audubon can think in color from the beginning, he's the bird in color, he uses color every step of the process. Havel only has white and black available to him as he's working on these images. Um, and he still has to imagine all the time that he's doing this, the color end result, which is not done by him. It's done by colorists in his workshop. 
Sometimes up to 50 would work on a single image. So a very, very involved process. Um, before that happened, I'm just going to move back a little bit, he would make proof sheets available to Audubon. So Audubon would, in fact, he would do a sample coloring of one of those black and white images, would present it to Audubon, and then Audubon would say, okay, or not okay. In this case, you can't, you probably can't make it out, uh, but there he says the flower is just too dark for what I want. It's a spiderwork flower, and he's scribbling on the proof sheet. There's only one proof sheet for each of these, and he's saying, this is not okay. It needs to be redone. You need to rethink the coloring. And that becomes a coloring guide for the colorists as they are working on the plate. Sometimes Havel would have to go back <coughs> to the copper plate and make adjustments to the plate um, following Audubon's instructions. <coughs> so even if you don't remember all the single steps, I, I hope you get a sort of an impression of the kind of obstacles that Havel faced with every, there's 435 plates in it. And that's some, something I'd like to impress on you. That's why it took 11 years. And of course there were problems uh, that, uh, that happened between the two. That Audubon would see one of those proof sheets and would say, oh my God, what did you do? He accused Havel of blackbiting, meaning uh, making the lines too deep so that the image itself gets too dark when it comes out. And Havel would you know, then have to explain to him that sometimes I have to I have to do this in order to get certain effects because you can, in fact, only pull the number of impressions off a copper plate without loss of um, the clarity that you want. Sometimes you don't have to go back to copper plates and re-engrave them. And there, in fact, uh, you can, in fact, see traces of this in different images. Um, at one point, Audubon very dramatically said, you know, if you keep doing this kind of work, I'll go back to my own woods. Audubon is in London at the time. He says, I'm going back to America and live there till the day I die, and I will never, ever do any work again, which is basically you know, what we would call a hissy fit uh, today. And Havel would say, no, no, let's talk about it. Um, they were friends. And um, I just wanted to read to you, there's uh, my friend Joseph Godou, who is the former director of um, Prince at Herschel and Adler, uh, who is, in fact, the world's foremost authority um, on this kind of printing process. And I want to pass around uh, probably what I think, it's not easy to get these days, but it's the best book on Audubon ever done. Uh, that's by, and I say this very dramatically, but it's true. It's an exhibition catalog that Joe Badu did of the proof sheets, which he deserves credit for having recovered, collected uh, at a Russian Adler exhibition. It's a very short text, but it's, it's glorious, and explains in crystal clear detail um, what Havel was doing. So, Joe Godou said about the friendship between uh, Havel and Audubon, which, you know, manifested itself in multiple ways. Havel's first son was called Robert Audubon Havel. And at the, at the baptism, Audubon, in London, Audubon was present and held the baby. The baby lived only for one year. Um, at the end of, when they were done with the second volume, Audubon presented Havel with a silver cup, uh, a loving cup, engraved to his friend, Havel by John James Audubon. So despite all these differences, there were, there were these, this is a friendship that kind of manifested itself. Uh, that men with very different temperaments 
very different expertise, but they came together on these plates, on every single plate here. This is what Joe Boudou said about the friendship in the letter to me. So Audubon would almost always have reason to complain. Havel would always have reason to persist. And the back and forth, waged in letters, but also on the press at the moment of printing, would always be part and parcel of their wondrous collaboration. It didn't kill the project. It didn't kill their friendship. Um, so that's, I can't think of any better summary of, uh, of this, this relationship that I'm talking about here. So when you look once again at one of those finished plates, you can probably better envision the kind of effort it would have taken for Havel to imagine this is the final product as he was sitting there working on his copper plates. Um, just wanted to give you one of the, this is sort of a curiosity, this image a little bit, but this is where Havel and Audubon are sort of on even terrain in some ways. This is the in, in, image of the great Auk, and Audubon had never seen one. In fact, by 1844, uh, the great Auk was extinct. Uh, Havel had never seen the great Auk. Havel had never seen anything. He had never been to the United States. This entire landscape, uh, this Arctic landscape, is a fantasy. But look what glorious results they get out of it, you know, coming together on the plate. It's a bit of a poignant image, too, when you think about the bird existing in art, but not in real life. And there's something tragic about Birds of America, too, in many ways. It's a tribute to a world that, as Audubon is working on, is evading. Uh, but I just wanted to give you this as a sort of late example of the kind of collaboration that Havel and Audubon enjoyed. In 1838, uh, Havel uh, works on the last watercolor given to him by Audubon. It's an image of the American Dipper, um, 1838. And look what he gives him, though. Not very much at this point. He's really comfortable that Havel can do these things. You know, he doesn't need to outline every little detail. And look what Havel does with it. It's the last plate of Birds of America. That's what Havel does with it. And it's, a, it's an amazing landscape that he creates that sort of recedes into the distance. The two birds, uh, female and male, sort of facing over a, um, um, a chasm. I know it says Columbia water ouzel and Arctic water ouzel. That was actually one of his mistakes again. Um, the American Dipper was right. Um, for the plate designation, it got a little off kilter in that case. And again, I've... Uh, enlarge this image uh, to show you what, what Hedel envisioned. And it's kind of, I'm being a bit of a romantic myself, but it's kind of, you can kind of say that he's dreaming about the new world at this point. And in fact, within six months after that plate, Hedel has packed everything as on the way to the United States uh, because that's the life that he envisions for himself. And uh, he ends up in New York first, and he still does some of his topographical work. This is a panoramic view of New York. He's not quite ready for the fact that the landscapes that he encounters don't quite look like the ones, these deep-peopled, almost fantastical landscapes that he's envisioned. He's not quite ready for the fact that um, the New World doesn't quite look like that. And there uh, he ends up in the most populous, ci populous city imaginable. That's a little detail uh, from Havel's view. Um, again, executed with a great sense of uh, accuracy uh, here that 
uh, gives you a measure of his talents as an artist. Um, he moves to Ossining and builds a house for himself with a little turret here. That's his painting studio uh, from New York, from where you could see the Hudson River, which is something that had always been part of this sort of uh, imagination of the new world. The house, uh, Rocky Mountain, is, doesn't exist anymore. It's and unfortunately, in the process, the constructor built something uh, on the site. Uh, a panel that was up here that was very famous that had been like painted uh, got lost and probably is a warehouse today. Um, but uh, it's kind of an unfortunate side effect. Um, this is from something that I just discovered last year uh, when uh, Joel and I were in Cleveland at the Cleveland uh, Natural History, a notebook that had been kept in 1840. Um, he's not being around for too long, and you can see how he's kind of experimenting with landscapes. Uh, the interesting thing about this little notebook is that he's traveling with his friend Audubon. And there's something, and you don't read about this so much in the Audubon biographies. There is no major biography in the world. No one has ever thought that he was important enough to do that. Uh, but he is traveling with Audubon, and there you can see with John James Audubon, he's in Chesapeake Bay. And in fact, Audubon in February 1840 is in Baltimore um, trying to sell this is a reduced version of Birds of America, the octavo version. He did a much smaller one of that volume. And Abel is traveling with him. Again, in fact, not mentioned in all of the biographies, but kind of touching that these men who collaborated for such a long time travel as friends together. He makes it to Washington, CD, uh, Washington D.C. And uh, this is uh, Susquehanna River. Um, and soon he's a full-time painter. And that's one of his views of the Hudson River. That's the Tapanzi, that sort of the Hudson once becomes like a lake. <coughs> and uh, you see, again, very different from the kind of landscapes that he provided for Birds of America, because that's a landscape that's changing. Where trees are planted, you see the villa here, full of uh, boats, the river. Um, and then you have, again, Havel can't not do this. You've got bad weather coming in, right? Sort of the, th the threat to civilization, in a way, that he always has to imagine. Now what he does, and this is my final image, uh, what he does in shortly before he dies um, is something quite interesting. Um, very strange oil painting. Um, just a few years before his death, uh, unusually uh, it's signed and dated. Many of our comp compositions are not. And uh, he, it's, it's a very strange scene. There's a bald eagle, white-headed eagle, as Audubon would have called it, collapsed. Obviously, it's been shot, sitting, sort of surrounded by debris. And there's two canvas black ducks engaging with it, you know, probably about to triumph over the fact that their enemy uh, is, is dying. It's called Death of a Warrior. Audubon was not a great friend of the white-headed eagle. He was fascinated by it. But he said it's also should never be the national bird. It's a bird that uh, that that feeds on what other birds provide. Um, it's, it, the nobility is much exaggerated. In fact, it's a very lowly bird. He wanted the turkey to be America's national bird, and indeed, Audubon Seal featured a turkey, America, my country. Um, so a very strange cobbled together scene. Again, one of the Hebelian landscapes in the back. And you can actually see what he's doing here. In 1871, Ottoman has been dead 20 years. So these are different scenes from Birds of America that Havel is kind of fused. This is the black-backed gull, 
one of Audubon's most violent plates, and you see where the blood and sort of the notion of the crash bird comes from. He's lifted that from that plate. The canvasback ducks come yet from another plate. And he's, of course, worked on all these plates. He remembers them, even 20 years later. And there's Bald Eagle. So it's essentially sort of almost like a riff on different themes and motifs from this universe of avian behavior that Havel was uh, uh, associated with for such a long time, and which, in 1871, living at this point in Tarrytown, uh, where he's moved, uh, he still remembers, uh, because he was, in fact, a co-creator. And he's now left, in a sense, as the sole owner and administrator of this universe that he's been part of for so long. Um, he dies a few years after that, and he's buried today in Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, you know, where Andrew Carnegie and Washington Irving and <coughs> Jasper Proxy and Charles Schiller are buried. And I would argue that uh, with Havel, they are in good company. Thank you. Also, if you want to come up and look at the volume at some point, we can also, you know, Kristen and I would be happy to turn pages as well if you want to see a little more of it. Um, anyway, uh, shall we turn the light on maybe? Sure. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> maybe I don't know enough about the art world, but the ownership of the copper plates, who retained that ownership? Because I know that the Audubon family sold some and some were destroyed, but yes, why did... Yeah. Why did the engraver not have some say in that? Uh, because um, um, Havel needed money and Audubon bought the plates from him. And Audubon was not able to keep them financially. The um, Audubon story is, uh, is a very interesting one because um, they went from being financially um, destitute uh, to being quite wealthy thanks to a smaller set, the Royal Octavo set, that was made mm -hmm. off the big plates so much so that they had a huge estate on Minnie's land, and then the whole thing unraveled. Then Lucy Audubon was left really as the only survivor of that family. The sons preceded her in death uh, after many, after economic ventures that just didn't work out, partially not their fault. Um, there's an attempt to reproduce Birds of America as a chromolithograph edition to make in the same size, it's the sort of bean edition, but is also a collector's item. We have it. It's just one volume. Civil War came. And the people who had money to buy these big plates for the southerners. You know, so it was not something that was would fly. So she ended up essentially having to sell things, having to, to divest herself of property. She ended up not being able to live on Minnie's land anymore. Minnie's land was incidentally also where she tutored George Bert Brunel, the founder of the Audubon Society. So hence this connection. Audubon, the great killer of birds, and Grinnell, the preserver of birds, which is a biographical circumstance. But essentially, it was money that it came down to. The, um, she was reduced to private tutoring at the end, and the whole kind of Audubon empire had essentially vanished. And the copper pits were part of this. There's about 80 left. Uh, the Henderson Museum is two of them. So um, the other one is uh, Yellow Lakes, I guess. Yeah. The American yeah, Bittern is just. Yellow legs, but it's yeah. not. There's no. Well, it's sepia color. There's no yeah. other color. Yeah. You can also buy a restock of the bitter and the autumn. I actually like that one better. Yeah. 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 Ye
there's a plantation in Louisiana where Audubon was the tutor. Yes. Are you Francisco. saying that was towards the end of his life? No, that was actually in 1821. So that's what I thought. And yes, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I didn't say, I don't know what I said, what the end of well, his life. you said towards the end that he taught to make a living. No, Lucy, Lucy, his oh, wife. Oh, oh, and she didn't teach painting. She was a private tutor, basically. Okay. No, Audubon was uh, in St. Francisville, uh, Louisiana, where he was essentially a drawing instructor for uh, the spoiled young daughter of the family. And uh, there's a great book about this by Danny Heitman, The Summer of Birds, that describes that summer that he spent. He was eventually let go. Uh, he never got along with the um, um, mistress of the plantation, Mrs. Perry, or fights. Uh, but it was an incredible summer for him because there was a lot of bird life that he saw. Um, there was some um, uh, uh, sort of suspicion that he was not quite appropriate uh, with his young pupil, Eliza, uh, for which there's no evidence. Uh, but it was a summer that was crucial before he embarked on this great adventure. And you can still go and see his opening plantation in San Francisco. You can still go and see it today. In fact, um, uh, I was uh, in a documentary that was actually filmed on the premises of the, uh, off the plantation. And I still remember that in one of the shoots, a large turkey named Frank walked into uh, the camera and he lived on the plantation. And the cameraman offered all sorts of things that he would do to that turkey, <laughs> after which she was ostracized, <laughs> I guess, because that's not what you do in the Ottoman world, I guess. But the plantation is still very much um, um, there today. <coughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Where can we see the film that they did with you uh, uh, Oh, there's, there's three uh, documentaries uh, about Audubon that are kind of circulating. Uh, so the first one was done by Larry Hart, uh, Drawn from Nature, and it's a PDS. <coughs> and that's occasionally on. And that was never, uh, I don't think there's any part that really is much about Henderson. In Henderson, there's a second film that's the Louisiana film, uh, um, which is called *The Song of Birds*, and the third one is *Wara Avis*, and that has just been released. It was just at the Sundance Festival, but I don't think it's available yet. And that's not for American public television. That's a full-length uh, film. Basically. When was that done? It was done over the last two years. It was done by Al Reinhardt, uh, who was the Apollo 13. I guess he was done by him. He did the script for that. Ron Howard was the, was the guy he was working for. Um, but I don't think it's still, it's a day of, it has been officially released. I know it was a Sundance. So that has a sequence in Anderson. Then. <coughs> well, there's a reception. And uh, I'm happy to uh, entertain questions during the reception. Also, if people want to look at the volume, one thing you can't do, you can't bring in drinks into here as you're looking at all of the Prince of America. That's, uh, it just to do the impress you, the last two times it's come up for sale, um, it was over 11 million in London, the sale in New York. It was disappointing, I mean, 8.7 or something like that that they sold for. Uh, but that just to give you context why uh, we can't have glass uh, pointed. No, no, this is not, um, I mean, of course you need to be careful in doing it, but in fact, uh, and Joel can give you the official rationale for not using gloves, but uh, I can give you the user's rationale for that. With gloves, you have absolutely no sensation for the 
It's very easy to reverberate. It's very easy to do damage to it. Wouldn't you say that's right, Kristen? This, by the way, is Kristen, who's a cataloger, uh, archivist, sorry. Archivist <laughs> and, uh, and cataloger at the Gilly Library, right? That's just, you do more damage than um, is, is helpful. Um, is that about right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there's also some theories, you know, that actually contact with the hands might be good for um, whatever reason. I don't know if that's scientifically to be proven, but uh, you can always see when on television when somebody at Sotheby's holds up the first edition of uh, Origin of Species and has white gloves on it for show purposes, you know, for television, but it's not <laughs> library part of the theater to the When the pages are turned on display each week, a new image is shown. Yes. Uh, don't usually two people turn a page? And that's why I said Kristen and I would be able okay. to turn pages for you. Uh, there's also another volume, and I'm not sure which one it is because I forgot to check. It's in the glass case, right outside as you enter. It's another volume of Birds of America. As you do, that not, do this, not to distract from Birds of America, just look up. You see a, a portrait, a wonderful portrait of Ernst Tegel, um, right above all. Uh, the inventor of the term ecology, done by Maria, uh, Maria Rosenthal Hutcher, an Austrian artist, who vanished sometime during uh, the uh, Nazi, uh, um, 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 the Holocaust. And, and uh, that's one of the few uh, paintings of her work that have survived. So it's, it's, it's very dear to me. Uh, do you see Heckel in old age with a, uh, I think it's a gorilla skull on his left. So leaning back in his chair, uh, you know, after a long life. And I think it's very fitting that he's right um, above from Audubon, you know, who envisioned, with Havel's help, this kind of conjunction of species and habitat that, uh, that was important for Heckel later on. Much better than what you see in the, the Philadelphia uh, uh, Academy, where Audubon's volumes right under George Ford, who was his main enemy. Uh, as you're trying, but in a sense, there's some justice to it. Bill uh, Steiner points this out in his handbook of Audubon prints that Oratu wanted to make sure that Audubon would never succeed because he had no training in science or art or anything. That Ort has to look at Birds of America forever. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much.